Yatsi Chorna Oi Chorna Yatsi Hanka Shtem se poljubila, shtem se poljubila Chornjava Hojvanka Shtem se poljubila, shtem se poljubila Chornjava Hojvanka Oi Tom su poljubila Ivanka tak Ivanka Vysoký tasunkej, vysoký tasunkej, soročka vyšivánka. Vysoký tasunkej, vysoký tasunkej, soročka vyšivánka. from Winnipeg with a traditional Ukrainian folk song, Oi Chorna Yase Chorna, I Am a Dark-Eyed Beauty. Vitaju vas vsih šenovni radio suhiči na radio programu Naš Holos Radio Krinskoho Korinja na bahatomovni radio stanci AM 1320 CHMB u misci Vancouveri. Pri mikrofoni Pavlina. Dobri večer and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. I'm your host Pavlina. On today's show, another Ukrainian food fair recipe that will be featured in our upcoming cookbook tribute to the late Sylvia Molnar, and an interview with Svetlana Kaminko of Maple Hope Foundation in Vancouver. She'll be telling us about a program they've developed, the first of its kind in the world, to help traumatized victims of war to heal as they adjust to a new environment. And a commentary by Professor Lupomir Lutsuk that unveils the source of the return 
of spurious claims against Ukrainians who fought Soviet communists during World War II. So stay tuned for all of that as well, our usual proverb of the week, other items of interest and great Ukrainian music. And coming up next, more Canadian content. Here is Millennia from Edmonton and Oitak Chinatak, yes or no. Thanks to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Shochenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for the past 60 years. Since 1963, the Shochenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing artists and arts groups, 
museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The Foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Holos listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit www.shochenkofoundation.ca. Ukraine is under deadly attack, and Ukraine War Amps is asking for your help with a donation today. Funds are desperately needed by Ukrainian defenders for bulletproof jackets, helmets, walkie-talkies, food, water and gas, and by civilians, including children, for food, water and medications, and when possible, escape to safety. Please donate today to Ukraine War Amps via PayPal, e-transfer to ukrainewaramps at gmail.com, or visit ukrainewaramps.ca. Up next, from the Nasholos Audio Archives, Ukrainian Food Flare. Hello! Ukrainian salads are usually very different from the standard lettuce-based fare most North Americans are accustomed to. This one certainly fills the bill. Beets and mushrooms may seem like an unlikely combination, but they make a delicious duo in a salad. This traditional Ukrainian salad has delightfully surprised many a dinner guest in my house over the years. It is also a visual delight, with the jewel tones of the cube beads glistening in a glass or crystal bowl or served on individual plates nestled on a bed of lettuce or kale. It's meatless and dairy-free, so it's perfect for traditional Lenten meals as well as for vegetarians any time of the year. To make beet and mushroom salad, you will need half a cup olive oil, one small onion, finely chopped, four cups cooked beets, julienne, one cup sliced cooked or fresh mushrooms, three cloves, crushed garlic, one tablespoon sugar, two tablespoons vinegar, salt, and freshly ground pepper. Gently fry the onion in oil until transparent. Careful not to scorch them. If you haven't cooked the mushrooms yet, you can add them to the onions and cook through. Add beets and other ingredients to onions and stir gently. Chill overnight. Serve cold. This will serve eight you can find this easy and elegant recipe on the Nosh Holos blog and, of course, in our cookbook. So try it. It's Ukrainian. This has been Ukrainian Food Flare from the Nosh Holos Audio Archives. Oh, 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 oh,
and a young Ukrainian singer who goes by the name Kristonko, and that was Oyuhayu Predunayu in A Grove by the Danube. Up next, one of those little gems you find scrolling through Facebook sometimes. <laughs> Svetlana Kominko is co-founder and CEO of Maple Hope Foundation, based in Vancouver. She helped found Maple Hope Foundation in 2014 in response to Russia's incursion into Ukraine. The initial goal of the organization was to support defenders of Ukraine, their families, volunteers, and other civilians affected by the war. Since the full-scale invasion in February 2022, Maple Hope Foundation expanded its scope to help Ukrainian civilians taking refuge in Canada. Recently, I spoke with Svetlana about Maple Hope Foundation's Healing Project, a program to help these traumatized individuals adapt and become productive citizens of Canada. Svetlana, I understand that Maple Hope Foundation has just started a new mental health program for people fleeing the war in Ukraine, not refugees, but temporary foreign workers, which is their official title, but they are actually, in fact, refugees. They've got a lot of trauma that they've brought with them, and you've come up with a program specifically to address these people and their needs. Yes. We were developing a program over the summer and successfully launched it um, beginning of September. Our main purpose is to provide psychosocial support to Ukrainians who fled the war. We have three target groups, women from 30 years plus, Mm -hmm. young people from 19 to 30, and high school students, teenagers, 15, 18. The plan is to offer support groups in 10 cities across Canada for Ukrainians that live in those 10 cities, but also in surrounding cities, pretty much from Victoria to Halifax. Mm. And we currently now offering uh, programs for women, for high school students, and have a huge waiting list that people signing up. It's in-house developed uh, seven-week program that helps to rediscover yourself in a new environment. It's a program that allows us to not just to be resilient, but transilient. And Ukrainians are famous for their resilience. Oh, yeah. But it's not enough now. And uh, there are so many researchers that are talking about that, like Gabo Mate, very prominent psychiatrist and mental health specialist who had a successful practice in Vancouver and now is sharing his wisdom across the globe because he himself was traumatized as a child. Okay. And knowing the specifics of Ukrainian culture, and I 
I also use my own uh, personal experience of reliving through trauma, being in the grieving process for a very, very long time, and understanding the importance of getting a professional and timely help pushed me and our team to this project. Uh, because when we are in silos and when we are, don't have support, and people tend to isolate, when sure. we feel yeah. anxious, depressed, yeah. uh, we don't want to see anyone. We, we are suffering in silence. Right. And um, offering this group support and very safe, very safe, very warm, confidential environment. And even we do this online at Zoom, we can see this transformation. We can see that our participants, they're opening up. They start to smile. They Aww. see the light. They can start setting some small goals, and they're getting a lot of support from each other. Well, that's good. I've, I've often thought in the past that this was what was missing for any country that opens up its doors and arms to people fleeing from a war, whether it's in Ukraine or Israel or Syria or, you know, from like World War II. How many people came um, after World War II and were laughed at because the stories that they had and, and still do, as, as we just saw this past week, people's stories of their experiences during of war in war, uh, of being victimized, and all their their experiences, the horrors, people couldn't comprehend because they just we couldn't. You had to experience it. You had to be there to understand what what happened how, and how it affected you. And so they come here, and there's nobody to talk to. So what you've done is is wonderful. It's long overdue. We should have been doing this years and years ago, but it's great that you're doing it. You've started this initiative, It's and it's the first in the world, isn't it? Uh, it looks like that uh, Canada is now the, the only one country that has this uh, Canada-wide project because we also need to understand that the language barrier is huge when you suffer from oh, yeah. uh, from mental health issue, from your emotional experience, right. and, and uh, yeah, and it's not just not just the language barrier, but it's a cultural barrier as well. Of of course, and I'm so happy that we were able to find professionals who are fluent in Ukrainian, and they can offer this type of support and healing opportunity in our native language, Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And we can see that the transformation, in addition to the group work, we have individual support so they can get one-on-one wellness session or career coaching session with, with practitioners that are speaking Ukrainian. And it, it does a miracle, wow. literally, it does a miracle in their lives. And I think what you just mentioned a lot about Second World War and so many Different ethnic communities were formed as a result of the refugee crisis after the Second World War. Right. But you, you didn't have at that time that support system. No. And people were just, you know, carrying along that trauma. And yeah. it affects their relationship with the loved oh, yeah. one. Korea's yeah. successes. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. They, and they're healing heals us as well. It benefits us because they become, um, you know, on a 
kind of mercenary level, they become more productive citizens. But also, it's not not just their their economic contribution; it's it's their social contribution. It's the um, you know the energy that that they have that isn't isn't suppressed because they're depressed and alone and isolated and frightened frightened they can c- come out and participate in the greater community and do all kinds of things and in turn help other people who are you know we're in the same situation that they just overcame so together we all grow and uh it's it's a it's a benefit it's a win-win for sure for everybody so yeah exactly canada was so generous and still is so generous towards ukrainians who are coming here and supporting ukraine yeah. And I do believe that Ukrainians that would have that healing opportunity, they would be able to give back, Absolutely. give back to Canada yeah, and support their yeah. loved ones in Ukraine. So it's a win-win. Yeah. It's definitely a win-win yeah. and, situation. And so the people that are are providing the services, all these, these professionals, the health, the mental health professionals and career counselors and those, are they volunteers or are they, um, are you, do you need funds to pay them a salary? No, it's a very small budget. We cannot afford to pay a salary, but it's just a small compensation for their individual consultation or their co-facilitating in the support group. Okay. Um, and we, when we organize community forums, offline and being Ukrainians who fled the war together, we also are able to compensate for their master classes, workshops that they are developing for Ukrainians. But nobody is on the salary. Okay. Uh, our entire board is volunteering for nine years. Wow. And over three hundred volunteers that are part of Maple Hold. Uh, it's hundred percent time investment, volunteer time investment. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's hard to sustain. I'm really concerned that we can burn burn out one day. Oh sure. Uh, and and we also need this kind of support. So trying to kind of be creative and brainstorm how you can keep going. Yeah. Because well, uh, it doesn't look it's going to end soon. No, no, it's, yeah, I can understand the, the danger of, of burnout. And then, of course, there's nobody, there are these, all these people in need that aren't being helped. So, um, you're giving honorarium to, uh, the, the professionals, the counselors that, uh, are, are helping the Ukrainian refugees. And what are the costs then? Uh, how much do you need? And, and what, you know, what are, what are the things that you, costs that you need covered? Oh, the, there is there is a demand for one-on-one sessions because we always uh, do the self-assessment on PTSD, whoever wants to come into the program. And some Ukrainians have a severe PTSD and they are more suitable for one-on-one support rather than for group. Once they are stronger, we can bring them to the group. Oh, uh, so oh. We, so, and for the one on one, there is, they need, there is a professional fee that has to be paid. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. once, and then once they're, um, the, the kind of the ex- extreme anxiety and trauma is, um, is dealt with, then they are able to participate in a group. And then, and then that's all done by volunteers. Yes. Wow. Exactly. That's incredible. Uh, work. There is a huge, huge demand for career coaching because they need to know how to live. How to support themselves, what, sure. What's next, right? Yeah, yeah. What should they do? 
Yeah. Uh, there are so many, uh, just in the last couple of months, we already offered over 500 free consultations, uh, career counseling. Uh-huh. And what an incredible people came to our country. Doctors, lawyers, IT specialists, teachers. And they have incredible education and experience from Ukraine. But mm-hmm. many of them don't have enough English to continue what they love to do in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, running their businesses because they were successful entrepreneurs. Right. And, uh, and we are trying to help them, to link them with uh, good uh, providers of English training, very intense programs. We try to secure scholarships or special offers for them that they can bring up their level of English and then we can find a suitable short program because they don't need another master's degree. They don't need to go and get, you know, uh, get into a doctoral program. Maybe a few, but most of them need more like a refresher course or a short bridging program micro-credential, a certificate, right, or post-degree diploma uh, that can help them to reach into the job market and and just become more confident in themselves and start making money and uh, realizing that they are doing a meaningful work and they can support themselves. They don't need to rely for the food bank or the the subsidy that comes from the government. Yeah, amazing. I, I think most Canadians aren't aware of this kind of work that is going on behind the scenes. So thank you, Svetlana, for telling us about this. And if people want to donate to support this um, this program, and what is it called again? The project name is Healing Project, and the full name of the, of the project is Healing the Wounds of the Womb Together. Okay, so you can make a donation through the Maple Hope Foundation website then for the healing, uh, the healing project, and then anybody will know that that goes to the healing the wounds of, of the war. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Maple yeah. MapleHopeFoundation dot org, and um, yeah, if you can spare um, a few dollars, this would be a very helpful contribution to Maple Hope Foundation to the Ukrainians uh, who are fleeing fleeing war and coming to Canada to. Uh, to heal and to give back to the country eventually. Yes, like $25 can make a difference in somebody's life. Uh, Because one of our practitioners will have the opportunity to give that one hour of their time and sit down with whoever doesn't have a clear picture about their future, can get that help and, and set the goals and have a roadmap that they can use uh, towards their bright future and live in the life, not just surviving in Canada. Yeah, yeah. That's good work. Svetlana, thank you again so much for uh, sharing this, uh, the, the story of Maple Hope and, uh, and this healing project. And I hope listeners will be moved to make a donation to help these people to integrate into Canadian society and, um, and heal from the, from the wounds of the war. Thanks. Thanks so much, Svetlana. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Up next, from Winnipeg, Paris to Kiev, from their first CD, and here they are with Atilin Kolomeka.
слухайте радиопрограму Наш Голос Радио Кринського Коріння. При микрофоні Павлина. You're listening to Наш Голос Ukrainian Roots Radio. I'm Павлина. Придуть скоро часи ще хороші, і ми хором співати буде пісні Божі. І не ворог, і не вернеться, не смердити ми порог, куля не полетить серце. Ворога поборемо, ворога поборемо, ворога поборемо, перемотай робимо. Музика в дорозі знадобиться Добре там, де вас нема Від села та й до села Від рівні до міста Від волосся неспроста Поєднала, розгубила Різна кольорова злива Kozak Siromaha from Ukraine, the singing soldier, I guess you could call him, in modern-day Kozak. And uh, that was a fairly recent release, and it is called Voroha Poboremo, We Will Defeat the Enemy. Up next, a commentary posted on YouTube and presented by the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta. Today's conversation is with Dr. Latuk, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada. Professor Latuk specializes in the political geography of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, refugee studies, and the ethnic and immigration history of Canada. Welcome, Professor. Good afternoon. Recently, much has been said of the military unit Waffen-SS Galicia Division, including the history of how members of that division were screened, found not to have been guilty of criminal activity, and eventually given full papers and civilian status in Canada. We've also heard about three different commissions clearing the division members of any war crimes, including the Deschamps Commission here in Canada. But this too has come into question. Let's discuss this a bit if we can. Certainly. Professor Litsuk, can you tell us about Operation Payback? Who organized it and whom did it target? Well, when I was involved as a participant appearing before the Commission of Inquiry on War Criminals that was headed by the Mr. Justice Jules Deschamps, that was in 19, 
1984 uh, that we get, began sort of getting worried about this issue. Uh, it was constituted and it continued its work until April of 1987. When we were appearing before it, uh, as members of the Civil Liberties Commission under the chairmanship of John Gergorovich, we always had this suspicion, and that's all it was, uh, that this whole issue had been somehow stoked up, provoked by the Soviets, but we couldn't prove it. So we went through the Duchenne Commission, and we can talk about that in a few minutes. In terms of Operation Payback, what that is, is now conclusive proof of what our suspicion was, namely that the Soviet Union, specifically the KGB, the Soviet secret police, initiated a campaign. We don't know exactly when, but sometime in the late 1970s. And the purpose of that campaign was pretty straightforward. They were afraid or concerned that given the cooperation that was starting to exist between Ukrainian dissidents and human rights activists inside the Soviet Union and Jewish refusals, that the combination of those two groups of dissidents and human rights activists inside the Soviet Union, if supported by the Ukrainian, Baltic and Jewish diasporas in the emigration, could cause them problems. So in order to disrupt any possibility of cooperation between Jews and Ukrainians and Baltic communities as well in the West, they began inserting what we would today call fake news stories into the Western media. They began circulating leaflets, films, planning stories in newspapers. And the whole intention was to raise this question of there are thousands of Nazis or alleged Nazis hiding in North America. Look at that. Jews in North America should, of course, rally to weed out these villains in their midst, in our midst. And so that provoked, of course, uh, a struggle between the, the Jewish and principally the Ukrainian diasporas. Um, it was a campaign that I'll have to say, hats off to the KGB, very successful. They played off stereotypes. They played off old prejudices on both sides. They did this extensively. And in the document that we have that was actually discovered by Professor Olga Bertelson from 1985, we know that they actually bragged about being so successful with Operation Payback that the United States government was, as they put it, forced to establish the Office of Special Investigations in the Department of Justice in the United States, which then went after only alleged Nazi war criminals. And then building on that success as they saw it, they said, we'll do the same thing in Canada. And they actually talk about how they planted fake stories in the Toronto Star, how they provoked in Canada the creation of the Commission of Inquiry on War Criminals headed by Mr. Justice Duchenne. So in 1985, the KGB were openly among themselves talking about how they orchestrated this subterfuge, how they spread this disinformation, how they managed to provoke such angst and anger, understandably, of course, in the diaspora communities that they went after each other over this tendentious, contentious issue and any possibility of them cooperating against Soviet interests was certainly disrupted for many, many years. So that was Operation Payback in a nutshell, what we always suspected when we were actually appearing before Justice Duchenne and engaging with journalists and others in the public domain. We always said, well, this must, where did this all come from all of a sudden? Um, 
and specifically in the in the document that we're referring to, the one from 1985, they mentioned the fact that the Galicia division was a perfect target, even though, as you've pointed out, veterans of that division were screened in Rimini in northeastern Italy right after the war by British, Canadian, American, and even Soviet investigators and found not guilty of any war crimes, were then held in uh, labor camps in England for a few years. Again, questions were raised about who they were. Nothing was found. Before some of them emigrated to Canada, Cabinet was contacted by the Canadian Jewish Congress, which said, you're not letting these Nazis in, these SS men into Canada. So Cabinet, the highest level of the government of Canada, contacted the High Commissioner for Canada in the United Kingdom, uh, Dana Wilgris, who investigated it and reported back to Ottawa that this was all nothing but communist propaganda, quote unquote. And that's when some of them were allowed to come to Canada and have ever since led productive lives. But again, the Soviets kept trying. They started, as I say, in the late 70s and in the 80s. We had the Commission of Inquiry on War Criminals, which came to the same conclusion that the screeners had come to in 1945-46 in Rimini, the same one they'd come to in 1950, namely that there was no evidence of wartime uh, criminality on the part of the division, that mere membership in the division was not a grounds for prosecution, and also concluding that the government of Canada was fully aware of who these men came, were when they came, and so you can't now denaturalize and deport them. So that it this should have been done, finished in 1987. And yet, because of the genocidal war being waged against Ukrainian Ukrainians by another KGB man in the Kremlin, what do we have? We have the same old stories surfacing, the same old players provoking it, and unfortunately, a large number of journalists who apparently can't read, have never looked at the Duchenne Commission report, have never considered what was discovered and uncovered and discussed and debated way back then, and now want to bring it all back again for no good reason. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience working in the with the Duchenne's Commission and, and its conclusions? Well, as I say, I was we weren't working for the Duchenne Commission. There was a group organized... Uh, in Toronto called the Civil Liberties Commission. It was associated with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, but independent of the Congress. It was headed by John Gregorovich, a lawyer in Toronto, and he had a number of volunteers who worked with him. I had moved from Alberta, from finishing up my PhD at the University of Alberta in 1984 to take a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Toronto. So I happened to be in Toronto and I had just finished my dissertation on the post-World War II immigration of Ukrainians to Canada, the so-called displaced persons or DPs, including veterans of the Divisia. So I was very well informed. I'd studied the archives. I'd interviewed veterans of the Divisia and many other refugees who came to this country after the Second World War. And I was asked to join this Civil Liberties Commission and make representations to the government and to Mr. Duchenne on all of these issues. So I worked with John and, of course, with the late and great John Sapinka, who later went on to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, he was the lawyer that we had engaged to represent the Civil Liberties Commission, and he did so remarkably well. So over the period of those two and a half very difficult years, because as you can imagine, and let's be very clear on this, I totally understand why my fellow Jewish Canadian citizens would be concerned that there might be a Nazi next door. You know, if we want to put it in the most silly, blunt terms, Ukrainians weren't Nazis and members of the division were Nazis. But let's just use the, the common phrasing. 
a Nazi next door. After all, we all know about the Holocaust. We know that there were Ukrainians who collaborated with the German occupation in the Holocaust, whether out of fear or greed or under duress or out of ideological conviction, whatever. There were such people. There were such people in every single nation in Europe. There's nothing unique about Ukraine. There were divisions of SS men organized by the Walloons, by the, think of Finland. Finland fought the Soviets in 1940. We don't call them Nazis. At any rate, um, the, the issue here is we made representations to the government at the time where we basically said, look, we understand the concern of the Canadian Jewish Congress and B'nai B'rith and so on. No one wants any war criminals in Canada. So our principal position was back then and remains to this very day that any war criminal found in Canada, if there is credible evidence of that individual's wrongdoing, regardless of who they are, where they were, ethnicity, nationality, gender, creed, color, all that stuff, doesn't matter who they are. If there is credible evidence, credible evidence, that a person committed a war crime or a crime against humanity, put that before the authorities, let the authorities review it and determine if that person should be brought to trial, and if so, in a Canadian criminal court of law. End of position. That is fair, it is just, it is blind, but it's not selective. The problem with the Duchenne Commission was that it was selective. It only looked at so-called Nazi war criminals in Canada. It ignored uh, the evidence about there being individuals who served in the NKVD, Smirsch, KGB, served Soviet interests and committed war crimes and were in Canada, at least four of them. I'm not saying 40, not saying 400, not even saying 4,000. You know, all these grossly exaggerated figures that were bandied about by Nazis were dismissed by Duchenne. Uh, I was actually looking at his report just this morning. Here it is. And the reality of it is virtually all of the cases that he looked at were submitted by individuals who provided no evidence at all. No evidence at all. They would denounce people. They'd name people. They'd say, we read it in a newspaper published somewhere in Eastern Europe. They said we would get anonymous tips. They'd bring them forward. Deshen would investigate them. And in some cases, he'd go to the person who said, well, that guy is a Nazi. Well, what are your evidence? I don't have any. I just think so. Or in one case, Canadian Jewish Congress submitted a name, said that we heard from this person that this man was this, that, and the other. Deshane went back to the original informant and she said, I never said that. So you can imagine how anxious ridden people were, how troubling this was. People were denouncing each other. People were putting names forward. And of course, among those were the names of veterans of the Divisia. I don't know whether it was out of ignorance of the wartime history or deliberate or malicious or Soviet attempt to undermine the Ukrainian-Canadian community, but many of the uh, so-called cases were, you know, this man was a veteran of the Galicia Division, although there's nothing against him personally. And so Deshen eventually, as I say, concluded that having examined the wartime history of the Divisia, he found no evidence of wartime criminality. He found plenty of evidence of the fact that uh, these men had been screened amply and concluded that you can't indict the unit for war crimes and that these men came legally to Canada. So uh, the current controversy that I'm sure you're aware of in the House of Commons um, is in a sense unfair because this individual came to Canada legally. The government knew who he was, and what his wartime activities had been, 
And as far as I know, and I don't know the man, uh, there's no evidence against him of any wartime criminality. And as far as I know, he has been a good, upstanding citizen taxpayer in Canada ever since. So why is he being pilloried internationally? It seems, again, to be nothing but a miasma generated to um, inflame passions and distract from the genocidal war being waged by the KGB men in the Kremlin against Ukraine and Ukrainians. That's really what I see this as being. Well, and understanding how this current narrative in the media has caused great pains to the Jewish community and pain to the Ukrainian community as well. What actions can we take to move our communities forward? Well, I think, look, some of my colleagues on the Jewish Canadian side of this fence, if you like, have called for the release of all the Duchenne Commission files. I think that's a mistake in the sense that many of these cases I've already told you were unsubstantiated. There was no evidence. So let's say now, 36, 40 years later, you publish all of those names. You say, Mr. Mueller, who lived in Belleville, was allegedly a war criminal. There was no evidence found against him. And so the case was um, dismissed. Meanwhile, he's probably gone. I mean, there are very few people alive. I mean, I was surprised to even see a Dvizinik who was 98. You know, I mean, there, there can't be many people that age. But okay. Mr. Mueller, I'm using just that name, pulling it out of the hat, is a German name, German-Canadian name, was accused of something, and it turns out there was no evidence, so it was dismissed. Now we put his name into the public domain. He may have children. He may have grandchildren. And they're now going to be approached by someone saying, how do you feel about the fact that your grandfather was accused of being a Nazi war? What, what, what good does this serve? You know, when you think about it, because, again, I've heard some of my colleagues say, well, these men swore an oath out of Hitler. So did every single German soldier, every member of the Luftwaffe, Wehrmacht, and so on. They all swore an oath to Adolf Hitler. He was the head of state. There was no choice. And so, yeah, they all swore an oath to Adolf Hitler. Gags, you know, you gag thinking about it. But the reality of it is, they all did it. So was every German soldier in the Third Reich a Nazi? That's ridiculous. It's like saying that everyone in the Canadian Armed Forces today is a liberal or a conservative or a monarchist be, be, because they swear allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen or now King Charles III. Uh, you know, it, there's a difference here between swearing an oath and what your political sympathies may be. Insofar as I know from having interviewed the Vizinike, from having interviewed the men and women, the Canadian men and women who served overseas during the war fighting the Nazis and later rescued the Divisia, interviewing them, they wouldn't have rescued Nazis. I talked to all these people. I looked at the records of the time, and I never found any evidence that these men were anti-Semitic, that they were pro-Nazi or supported the war aims of the Third Reich. They were fighting to defend their Western Ukrainian homeland against a second Soviet occupation, having experienced the first one and knowing what the Soviets were bringing. They saw the bodies, they saw the torture chambers, they saw what the Soviets left in their wake as they retreated from their former allies in July or late June, July of 41. So these people who joined the Divisa, teenagers, and swore this oath, weren't doing it to fight against France or England or America or Canada. They weren't fighting our soldiers. They were fighting our recent ally, the Soviet Union, who just before June 22nd, 41, was still supporting Adolf Hitler, who was killing Canadians and British and French soldiers and others in Western Europe. So, you know, well, you know, this man fought against our allies. 
No, he didn't. He fought against the Soviets who were invading his homeland. He was defending his family, his country against a hated, understood foe. Same foe we're fighting today. Um, now, would I have joined the Divisia? Should people have joined the Divisia? Were there other options? Not many. Not everybody joined the Divisia. Not everyone who joined the Divisia was a good man, I suppose. I mean, you know, and no military unit is full of angels. And it is a war. So, again, if there is evidence of someone having committed a war crime, this person committed a war crime, bring the evidence forward. You know, you can't just say they're all bad because we've gone through that. We've gone through that several times. Why are we doing this again? If you have evidence against the individual who appeared in the House of Commons, which I agree was an unfortunate situation, it shouldn't have happened given the potential sensitivities, but it happened. I think it was an innocent mistake. The Speaker of the House has paid a serious penalty for his error. He's resigned from a prestigious position. Okay, he took, he accepted responsibility, he did the right thing, and he resigned. The man who invited one of his constituents, whom, as I say, I don't know, didn't do anything wrong. And yet he's been, you know, vilified internationally. Again, someone wants to stand up and say, I have the evidence against that man. Well, good. Go to the RCMP war crimes unit, table it, and they can investigate it. And I'm all for it. But if you don't have the evidence, what are you doing? Who are you serving? Consciously or otherwise. Some of the people who are doing this, I am convinced know absolutely what they are doing, and that is trying to distract from the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine, are trying to undermine the Ukrainian-Canadian community as we rally in support of Ukraine, as Ukrainians defend themselves against this unprovoked aggression on the part of, frankly, Russian fascists. You want to talk about Nazis, look at the people who are invading Ukraine. Look at the rapes, look at the mass killings, look at the abduction of children. It's a genocidal agenda. People should be focused on that. Instead, we're now being dragged back to fight World War II. I think this is a pure blind, unnecessary, divisive, and very un unrequired kind of uh, issue to raise at this time. Again, the archives are there. I don't say destroy the archives. I think the Duchenne Commission archives, all of them, should be preserved and should be made open to historians and scholars in due course, but not in the context of the current war against Ukraine, and certainly not now, because you're not going to bring anyone to justice. You're only going to inflame all these old passions. You're going to reopen old wounds, as they say. So unless there's evidence, and there was no evidence way back then, I don't think there's any evidence now, just stop. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation and uh, we'll continue the dialogue. It's not well, ending and we do need to put it into perspective and look at what's happening in Ukraine today as well. Yes, so thank well, you, for, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm sorry that this issue has to be raised yet again. As are we.
він лежить. Тебе тяжкі боги, без ліворі ноги, без правої руки, ой, лежить він лежить. Тебе тяжкі боги, без ліворі ноги, без правої руки. That was a group of uh, Hasidic Jewish men sitting around a table and singing Batko Nash Bandera, the um, tribute song to the much maligned and slandered World War II leader of the Ukrainian partisan movement in World War II, which is now, of course, being demonized by tools or fools of the Kremlin. And it's interesting to note that uh, Jews and Ukrainians are fighting side by side against the Kremlin's unprovoked aggression, and it is only in the diaspora that there is this antagonism being fomented by outside sources who are never happy to see Jews and Ukrainians getting along. Up next is a short instrumental by the late Ron Kahoot and his group Buria, who spent many, many years, decades, in fact, uh, entertaining in the Toronto Ukrainian community and also the Jewish community. They played for many bar mitzvahs and uh, Jewish weddings. And uh, here they are with a traditional Ukrainian folk song done in a very klezmer way. Радію ви слухаєте радіопрограму «Наш голос» радіо українського коріння на багатомовній радіостанції АМ 1320 CHMB у місті Ванкувері. Не жаль, ми вже скінчили нашу програму, вже час додому і сказати до побачення, але перед тим всіма словами мудрості. Як не хочеш хати воза, то доглядай коней. And our proverb of the week translates as «If you don't want to push the wagon, then take care of the horse». And with that, we've come to the end of another edition of Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. In between broadcasts, please stay in touch with us via our Facebook page. And for transcripts, audio archives, and a link to our podcast, visit our website, www.nashholos.com. And you can also find Nash Holos on your favorite podcast app. Well, our time is about up, so we'll wrap things up with... The D-Drifters in the Cornfield. I'm Pavlina. On behalf of all of us here at Nash Holos and AM 1320, thanks for listening and Dobranich!
Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.